As many of you know who've been here uh, for the last couple of weeks, uh, we have been going through our summer teaching series on the kingdom of God. And from the very beginning, uh, one thing that we've made known is that the kingdom of God is an essential theme of scripture and is the theme of the life and ministry of Jesus. Uh, And if we misunderstand the kingdom, then there's a great possibility that we miss Jesus altogether. And so I want to encourage you, if you haven't listened to some of our podcasts, to go back and check them out. And if you have, um, I'm excited uh, to move forward uh, this morning and finish this uh, teaching series off this morning. Now, as I told you earlier, the kingdom of God is so vast and so enormous that there's no way that we could cover it in just three weeks. And so I have no doubt in my mind that as a church, we will constantly be coming back to God's kingdom. Uh, But nonetheless, for the sake of this series, we are going to end it this morning. Now, here's what I want to do before I actually get into the scriptures and before we get into today's message. I kind of just want to do a bit of a review for you and catch you up on some of the kingdom characteristics or the kingdom of God, the qualities of the kingdom of God that I think are really essential for you and I to know as Christians. And so I'm going to give you three, and if you've been here, you'll know that this is a bit of a review, but we all know that the mother of all learning is repetition. And so uh, let's repeat and let's learn together three characteristics regarding the kingdom of God. Now, if you remember, the first characteristic regarding the kingdom of God is this. The kingdom of God is not a realm, but it is a rule and a reign. What do I mean by that? The kingdom of God is not a geographical location. It's not a physical space. But the mantra that we've kept telling you over the past couple of weeks is this, is that wherever God's name is hallowed and wherever his will is joyfully obeyed, there his kingdom comes. And so you could be uh, in the mall, you could be at a Starbucks and the kingdom of God can come. You could be in a banquet room at the Crown Plaza in Union City, and the kingdom of God comes. Or you can be in a church built specifically for worship, and the kingdom of God comes. It's not a geographical space or a location, but wherever his name is hallowed, and wherever his will is joyfully obeyed, his kingdom can come. Now the second characteristic, the second part of this review that I want to go over regarding the kingdom is this. Uh, The kingdom of God refers to God's unique purposes, not his total providence. Now, let me explain the difference between his unique purpose and his total providence. Now, we know that God is the creator of all things. Everything on heaven and earth has been created by God. He is the Lord of all things. And because he is the creator of all things and the Lord of all things, he is the king of all things. But when the New Testament writers refer to the kingdom of God, when Jesus proclaims, preaches, and inaugurates the kingdom of God, they're not talking about his total providence, but they're talking about his specific redemptive plan to save mankind through his Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so the kingdom of God is about his redemptive purposes, his specific plan to redeem you and I through his Messiah, Jesus Christ. Amen? And finally, number three, and we talked about this at length a few weeks ago. It's a mystery, a bit of a paradox, and it's the reality that the kingdom of God is both simultaneously already but not yet. 
It's already, but not yet. And we revealed this mystery. It sounds kind of contradictory, but remember we told you that a lot of times in the moment, something doesn't make sense. But as history unfolds and God reveals, we can look back and say, oh, what didn't make sense before now makes sense to me. And this is a mystery revealed to us in the New Testament that the kingdom of God is already but not yet. It's a paradox, but it's not a contradiction. And let me explain. The mystery is this, that the kingdom of God comes in two stages. The first stage is called the inauguration, and the second stage will be called the consummation. Well, let me explain to you what I mean by that. The inauguration of the kingdom, the breaking in of God's kingdom, appeared when Jesus Christ came onto the scene. And Jesus Christ announced that the kingdom of God has come, that the kingdom of God is at hand, that the king of this kingdom is here, Jesus himself. And he inaugurated the coming of this kingdom, the inbreaking of this kingdom into the scene of this world and on, onto history. And through his death and through his burial and through his resurrection, he has dealt a decisive blow to Satan. Amen. And this is the Jesus that we read about in the Gospels, a humble lamb riding in on a donkey, carrying peace, a suffering servant who humbled himself to death on a cross. This is the inauguration of the beautiful kingdom of God. The unexpected king conquers, not through destroying, but through dying. And then we go to the consummation, and we look forward to the consummation when our King Jesus will come back a second time. Amen? But can I tell you something? Can I warn you? When he comes back the second time, he won't be on a donkey. He'll be on a white horse. And he won't be carrying peace with him. He'll be carrying a sword. Some of the guys are like, I like that, Jesus. <laughs> right? And there'll be a tattoo on his thigh that says, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he will come with fire in his eyes. And he'll come to judge the nations. And this time it won't be at peace, but it will be in judgment. This, this consummation of the kingdom we read about in the book of Revelation. Amen? And so we see these two stages of the kingdom that it's already and it's not yet. I love what John Calvin said. The only way that the kingdom of God is going to manifest itself in the world before Jesus returns to consummate it, is if the church manifests it by the way we live as citizens of heaven and subjects to the king. And if you've been with us, we are on our second part of demonstrating the kingdom. Now that Jesus has inaugurated the kingdom and one day he will come back and consummate the kingdom, the church find itself in between the inauguration and the consummation. What are we called to do? Well, Jesus says, you are called to demonstrate the kingdom that I have already inaugurated. And so I want to focus on what does it look like for you and I as the church of Jesus Christ to demonstrate the love, the power, the beauty of this kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would, that you would just release your word. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take my words as insecure and jumbled and full of sin as they can be. And that you would speak to the hearer loud and clear 
And I pray that as we walk out of this room, that Inspire Church and all those in attendance today, whether members or visitors, um, those that are here for the first time, that we would all step, that we would all take one step closer to you, Jesus, because of the reality of your kingdom. Lord, I pray that you would speak. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Let's do this. Matthew chapter 12, 22 through 30. And we'll have it for you up here if you don't have your Bibles or your apps with you. We'll have it for you on the screen. Um, but follow along as I read Matthew chapter 12, 22 through 30. It reads like this. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, referring to Jesus, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? Now you have to realize in Jewish context, whenever you hear son of David, they're referring to a prophetic title given to the one who would deliver the children of Israel out of bondage, the Messiah. Can this be the Messiah? Now can I tell you something? They were a little confused about the Messiah because Jesus came in a very unexpected way. They expected the son of David to come in power with an army and to overthrow the Romans. Yet here Jesus was he wasn't coming to overthrow the Romans he was coming to overthrow Satan and so they said could this be the son of David that we've all been promised we we don't see him coming in war but there is something authoritative about him that we just can't ignore could this be the son of David but when the Pharisees heard it they said it is only by Beelzebub the prince of demons that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now, let me back out of this story and explain to you what's going on. Jesus has just casted a demon out of a man, and because the man has been healed, and, and because the man has been freed from this demonic oppression, this man's sickness leaves him. And some people are amazed and asking themselves, who can this be? Is this the Messiah? Is this the promised one? He works with so, so much great authority while the Pharisees and the religious leaders look at Jesus and they accuse him of casting out demons by another demon. In other words, they accuse him of working with Satan to cast out Satan's army. Jesus looks at him and says, you're silly. No kingdom, no house can stand if it's against each other. There is no civil war in the kingdom of darkness. And so here's what I want to do uh, this morning. 
as we finish our study on God's kingdom, we can't afford to be ignorant to the reality of another kingdom. Jesus said this, how will Satan's kingdom stand if it is divided against itself? This very question implies that there is, in fact, a very real kingdom of darkness. It also implies that this dark kingdom is unified in its mission to deceive and control mankind. In fact, sometimes I look at some churches and I realize that the kingdom of hell is more unified in its mission than some churches are today. I pray that Inspire would not look like that. As a result, even though Jesus has secured us victory, I want you to get this. We cannot underestimate a defeated devil. We cannot underestimate a defeated devil. So I want to take a few moments today to share with you Three characteristics regarding the nature of Satan. Uh-oh. <laughs> it's going to get weird, right? I want to take some moments today, a few moments today, to, to share with you three characteristics regarding the nature of Satan and the nature of his kingdom. Let's look closely at verse 29 one more time. If you have your Bibles, look closely at verse 29. I want you to see this. Jesus, referring to Satan, he says this. How can someone enter, and this is going to be important, a strong man's house and plunder his goods? I want to focus on that. Jesus says, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Jesus' simple question is very revealing about hell, about the kingdom of darkness, and about Satan. I want you to see this. Three things. Satan and his kingdom have a domain. Satan and his kingdom has a domain. Number two, Satan and his kingdom possesses power. And number three, Satan and his kingdom has spoils of war. Now let's unpack this together. Let's start with Satan and his kingdom has a domain. You see, Jesus refers to this domain as Satan's house. In other words, there is a realm. There is a place where there is a sphere where Satan operates and where Satan is given a kind of influence and control. In John chapter 12, verse 31, Jesus calls Satan the prince of this world. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, the apostle Paul says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, the Apostle John could not have made this more clear. He says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, if we put these concepts together, 
If we put these scriptures together, it describes Satan to us as the God of this age, the prince and ruler of this world, in whom the entire world is under his control. Now I want to ask you a question. Is this too radical for you to believe? Is it too much for you to hear that arenas such as industry, politics, education, business, arts, and entertainment are all under the control of Satan? Is that too radical for you? I want you to listen to this. If you have ever felt like there was some kind of invisible hand guiding this world and its systems towards evil, if you've ever speculated about shadow governments or secret societies bent on manipulating and deceiving the masses, now you might be a crazy conspiracy theorist. But you actually might be right because the kingdom of darkness ruled by Satan has a grip over this world and its systems and is bent on deceiving and manipulating the nations. And so if you have an inclination that there is something greater, something bigger, that there's some type of shadow guiding this world towards a particular evil place. I want to let you know, you're not crazy. You're actually woke. And I don't mean to steal that phrase, but I do. Because biblically woke means this. You're woke to the fact that you live in a world influenced by darkness. You do. And can I just go on a discipleship detour for a moment? If that phrase or if this concept of Satan's domain is too radical for you, then you are not going to be careful about what you watch and what you listen to. Because you are what you behold. You are. And all of us are guilty. And through entertainment, we tell the world, mold us, shape us, guide us, conform us into your image. And Satan gladly says, yes, I will. And it's tragic to me, but it's part of the tension of our reality that as Christians, the only biblical influence that we give ourselves is Sunday morning. While the rest of the week we are being molded and guided and shaped by the principles of the world. And we scream to the Hollywood, teach us, tell us, show us. And we scream to the music industry, teach us, tell us, and show us. And they have no problem propagating anti-Christ behavior. And so one day a week you get a sermon from the scriptures. The rest of the week you get a sermon from everywhere else. And can I just say this? I know it sounds a little hard because I'm a challenging pastor. You know that by now. You, if you've decided to be a member of this church, it's because you like to get beat up a little bit. <laughs> there are other churches you go, and they love you and pastor you and coach you. And I say, man, that's, there's, we're different parts of the body. I'll send you there. God bless you if that works. <laughs> 
But here is a really important discipleship detour and thought for you. What are you beholding? Because what you behold is what you become. And you know what beholding means? What are you watching? You know the simple answer to that is television. I'm not preaching against television. I love my movies. Don't get me wrong. All I'm simply asking is that you would ask yourself, is this too radical of me to understand? Or do I really believe that there is an influence in the world, systems, that's guiding and manipulating us towards his ends? And then we wonder why we still can't get over some of these things that continue to trip us up. And then we wonder why our marriages are still unhealthy. And then we wonder why we've been attending church and doing all those things. We've been going to small groups. And we wonder why there are certain breakthroughs we just can't get. Well, it's probably because there's a tight hold on you through the influence of this world. Number two, number one, Satan and his kingdom has a domain. Number two, Satan and his kingdom possesses power. Now, can I tell you something? There are two mistakes that we commonly make. The first is to overestimate his power and make Satan out to be something as God's worthy opponent. God's equally worthy opponent. And that somehow there's this tug of war between good and evil. I want you to know that there is no opponent against God. Satan is God's monster on his leash. So you ask them, why is there even such a being? Because God is getting the glory. God is, you, you know, Satan has to ask permission before he can even do anything. Satan is not all-powerful. He is not sovereign. And so we can overestimate his power, but you know, the equally big error that we can make is we can underestimate his power or totally convince ourselves that he does not exist. But can I just tell you something? If Jesus refers to Satan as a strong man, then we should listen. If Jesus refers to Satan as a strong man, then we should be careful to pay attention to what Jesus is saying. Are you with me? So here's what I want to do. I just want to give you four points regarding Satan and his kingdom strength. And I hope these points would stick with you as we begin to understand the reality of this other kingdom. Point number one, Satan and his kingdom is personal. Satan himself is personal. What do I mean by that? Many mistakenly believe that Satan is just some kind of representation of all the negative things that go on in this world. But can I tell you, that can't be further from the truth. I want you to know this. Satan is a very real person. He's a fallen angel with supernatural power. And this leads us to our second point. Satan and his kingdom is supernatural. Now, I want you to get this. Satan is not all-knowing. He is not all-present, nor is he all-powerful. When it comes to him and God, there is no comparison. Yet we still must understand that he is an invisible spirit being, are you with me, who is extremely more powerful than you and I. We stand no chance against him without God. He will destroy and devour you without God. Number three, 
Satan and his kingdom is ancient. <laughs> what do I mean by that? Satan and his kingdom is really, 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 really old. Really old. But if you think about it, over time, he has learned to tempt and attack mankind extremely effectively. In fact, he is so good at what he does. Can I just share a statistic with you regarding how good he is at what he does? Satan is so good at what he does that there's only been one man in human history that's ever been able to resist his temptation. Out of the billions and billions of people that walk this earth, there has only been one man that could resist his power. And that's Jesus Christ. But as for you and I, we are powerless to resist the temptation of Satan. And finally, Satan's kingdom has an army. You see, even though Satan is not omnipresent like God he does rely on three areas of influence, three layers of influence by which he exerts his influence and his control. Let me explain to you what those three areas of influence are. The first one, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, is the sons of disobedience. That he works through, Satan works through the sons of disobedience. Well, what do I mean by the sons of disobedience? Unbelievers. Unbelievers. Can I just read you a, and I know I'm going backwards here. Can I just read you a, a statement regarding the sons of unbelievers? And can you just let this sit with you for a moment? Listen to this. Satan has the most freedom to work where the human will is most ready to disobey the will of God. Satan has the most Freedom to work where the human will is most ready to become disobedient to the will of God. And so Satan, his first layer of influence and control is through the sons of disobedience. Now watch. It's through the sons of disobedience that create, here's the second layer. Number two, the world systems. The systems of this world. And so those unbelievers, those deniers of Christ are inspired by Satan to create systems that are anti-Christ. It's no wonder that through our education, our children are being taught and the word of God is being attacked. It's no wonder through our system, our political system, even though God is sovereign, that the enemy is there working through the sons of disobedience. You know, it's amazing to me. I was having a conversation the other day while I was camping with a friend of mine. She's in the military. She works closely with some of the military personnel that go to the border. And this is not a political statement. This is a reality. And they say that many times young girls between the ages of 7 to 15 that come through the border will be found with these pills. What is it? Is it the AB? What's the abortion pill? Uh, this is the pill that you could terminate your late pregnancy. You could terminate a pregnancy. Not a lady pregnancy, but you could terminate a pregnancy almost effectively. And he, they, what they say is that these 7 to 15-year-old girls are given these pills as they make their trek through the border towns and the border cities for two reasons. Many times they get raped. Or other times they're used as payment to get through. Now, can I just tell you? Satan and his kingdom working through the sons of disobedience 
is working in this world in ways that you and I don't even know. You know, some of us have a question, how does a good God have a hell? How does a good God send people to hell? But can I tell you, if God were to pull the veil back and allow you to see all the dark things that happen in the dark places in this world, you would understand that a righteous and holy and just God will send people to hell. We don't question a righteous judge when he says guilty to someone who's guilty. In fact, we get angry when someone who is guilty is left to go unguilty. We say justice hasn't been served. And the dark and pitiful and disgusting and cruel things that happen in corners and places in this world that you and I will never see. God is a righteous judge. So the first layer is he works, Satan works through the sons of disobedience. The second layer is that through the sons of disobedience, they create systems in this world that are geared towards grabbing your attention and pulling you away from God's will. And finally, the third layer is unclean spirits and demons. I want you to know this. Satan literally commands an innumerous, unable to count group of spirit beings that he took with him when he rebelled against God. In fact, we're told in Revelation chapter 12, Satan is described as a dragon with a long tail, and as he was falling, he swept a third of the stars with him. This is an innumerous amount of spirit beings that have fallen with him and are under his command. And guess what? They are on mission. They are on mission. In fact, here's what's really amazing. Some of you in here, some of you in here have dealt with the demonic, whether you have personally uh, felt like you've encountered something spiritual, like an attack. Some of you have known people that have dealt with the demonic. Some of you in here uh, watch that all the time on TV, and you're kind of like, a, you know, you love the scary movie thing. Hollywood has a tendency, really, to take things and fabricate it. But here's what I want you to know. Demons and the demonic and the spiritual realm is very real. Very real. In fact, there are even cases in which a demon can enter an individual and cause that individual to become physically sick. Now, that's not all the time. So everyone here is sick is thinking, oh, my gosh. <laughs> but I do want to I harken back to this particular story. If you remember in the very beginning, Jesus cast out a demon of a man who's deaf and mute, right? And as soon as the demon leaves, the man is healed. And so we do know that the demonic presence can possess a person, can cause a person to control a person, uh, but also can even cause them to be sick. In fact, just to kind of take a step back, there have even been times in my uh, ministry um, where I've prayed for people who are sick. And, you know, maybe there was a back pain or maybe there was like an ongoing, um, some type of ongoing pain or ailment. And as I'm praying for the pain, I felt like the Lord was leading me to stop praying against the pain and start praying against unforgiveness. And what we realize is, is that this burden of unforgiveness, this anxiety that is manifesting itself out in the physical is really being caused by spiritual attack. 
And as we begin to pray these things, all of a sudden these burdens begin to lift. The individual begins to forgive, and immediately the back begins to be healed. Now, God is sovereign. This doesn't happen every time. But there are moments and times where his spirit empowers us to be able to pray and gives us discernment that this physical ailment is actually a deeper strategic attack and assault against an individual. And there might be more to it. Are you with me? Are you with me? I want to give you a brief list of all Satan can do. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 through 4, it says this, that he blinds the minds of the unbelievers. Did you know that you can go to church and you can hear the gospel message and it cannot change you? Did you know that every week, every Sunday, there are individuals that will sit down, that will hear the word of God, the power of God's word, yet they will walk out of here unfazed and unchanged. Because even on a Sunday morning, the devil is at work. He is at work. And it may not be him because he's not omnipresent, so he can't be at every church. And trust me, the devil is bigger fish to fry than me. You know? Some of you are like, the devil made me do it. No, he did it. You're not that important to the devil. Like, he's way more strategic than it's just come after you, right? Like, you won't go to church on your own. You know what I'm saying? Like, the devil ain't got to worry about you. You over there Netflixing anything you want. The devil's like, he's good. He's strategic, and he's going after strategic locations, but he has his demons and his spirits throughout the world, but also he has his system already influencing you. And so if you're already influenced by a system, there's no need for a demon or a devil to come after you because that system is causing you to sit in this room and hear God's word but reject it because you've been mentored and discipled by the system. Are you with me? So number one, he blinds the minds of unbelievers Matthew chapter 13, verse, nine, verse 4 through 19 says, he snatches the word away from people who hear it. In Matthew 24, for 2 Thessalonians 2, even in Exodus 7, <laughs> he deceives the world and even prophesies and performs signs and wonders. You know me. You know where I'm going to go. We chase the spectacular. We do. And, it, it, and, we, and we go after signs and wonders and miracles because they're, 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 it's a show. And we look to that as the primary way in which the kingdom is demonstrated. But I want you to know that Satan does the same thing. And at, the, and at the end of it all, every sign, every wonder, and every prophecy is to be tested. Satan also uses people to hinder people. He opposes any missions effort that seeks to glorify Christ. He even throws Christians in jail, persecutes them, and is willing to murder them. I want you to watch this. Satan's power is most active in impeding the work of Christ. Satan hates the gospel. He hates the message of the cross because it's the only hope for humanity. He's most at work 
deceiving, condemning, and killing wherever the gospel is advancing, proclaiming, and saving. Finally, number three, regarding the nature of Satan and his kingdom, is that Satan and his kingdom has spoils of war. Remember what Jesus says? He says, not only is the strong man strong, and not only does that strong man have a house, but he also says, in that strong man's house, there are what? Goods. And you know what these goods are? None other than unbelievers who have been blinded by the God of this age and the things of this world. His number one goal is to take from God the reward of his suffering, and that's you and I. So, what are the implications for the church today? What do we do in knowing all this? How do we respond to these realities? One commentator wrote, The only way the kingdom of God is going to manifest in the world before Jesus returns is if the church manifests it by the way we live as citizens of heaven and subjects to the king. And we do this in three ways. And we're going to finish and take communion. We do this in three ways. How do we manifest the kingdom of God right now? We do this in three ways. The first way is this. We wage holy war. The second one is this. We make the invisible visible. And finally, number three, we live prophetically. This is what we do. Number one, we wage holy war. If you are a member of the body of Christ, if you have said yes to Jesus Christ, you have been initiated into a kingdom army. And we are called to wage holy war. Now, I understand this concept of holy war in our culture can be a little scary. But I want you to know, I'm not talking about some kind of physical jihad. I'm not talking about some kind of new crusade. Because the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty for pulling down strongholds. We fight not with guns, not with tanks, not with knives, not with vests full of bombs. But we fight hatred with love. We fight bitterness with forgiveness. We fight chaos with peace. And this is so important. At Christ's first coming... Kingdom realities and kingdom demonstrations were breaking into the world. Dead bodies were raising. Sickness was healing. Demons were being cast out. In fact, wherever Jesus went and wherever the kingdom was proclaimed, signs and wonders followed. Listen to this. Luke chapter 9 verse 2. He sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal. Luke chapter 10, verse 9. Whenever you enter a town, heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. And here in our opening story, in verse 28, we're told, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. This is the true definition of holy war. At Christ's first coming, he stepped into the strong man's house bound the strong man up and plundered his goods and now Jesus invites his church to continue in that work number one we wage holy war number two we make the invisible visible 
We accomplish this in two ways. First, in us and then through us. Church of God, we make the kingdom of God visible because it's invisible in two ways. First, in us and secondly, through us. What do I mean by that? First, we display Christ's rule in us because we know that there is no more powerful demonstration of the kingdom than a life transformed. Secondly, we display Christ through us by, ready for this? Loving our enemy. Hmm. How about this? By forgiving our brothers, forgiving our sisters. You ready for this one? By welcoming in the stranger, by advocating the cause of the most vulnerable and the most weak in our society. I want you to know this. Sure, signs, wonders, prophecies, and miracles are all demonstrations of the power of the kingdom. But if they're not motivated by love, they're useless. Like I said earlier, Satan can mimic every one of those gifts. But you know what he can't do? He absolutely cannot make someone holy. Did you know that? Did you know Satan can prophesy? Did you know you can pick up the phone and call a fortune teller and they know they can tell you some aspect of the truth better than some Christians can? Did you know you can go into places and signs and wonders can take place? Did you know there's tribes and nations that have gurus and have witch doctors that can move in a power even greater than most pastors in America can? Satan can do all those things, but the one thing he can't do is make you holy. The one thing he can't do is make you kind. He can't make you gentle. He can't make you long-suffering. He can't make you love unconditionally. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. Finally, number three, we live prophetically. Three things. We wage war. We make the invisible visible. And finally, we live prophetically. What do I mean by that? We demonstrate as God's people prophetic actions and prophetic community. We demonstrate prophetic actions and we demonstrate prophetic community. I'm going to ask the team to come up as we get to get ready to take communion and we'll finish this morning and I'll instruct you but here's what we do we participate as a body of Christ as believers in prophetic actions and prophetic community Uh, what do I mean by prophetic actions There are some actions that we perceive as bold. Amen? I mean, bold prophetic actions in which we as Christians stand up and do something for God that is so bold and so 
grand and so big and we come against Satan and the kingdom of darkness. We take missions trips to the Philippines. We go to places where we are uncomfortable and we do these bold things. We stand up and we preach the gospel. We we, we, have, we fight holy war. We take prophetic, bold actions that declare that God is with us. And here's what we do. Every time the sick is healed, every time the dead is raised, every time a life is transformed and made new, we are prophesying to the world that there is a kingdom coming and that right now it's here in a glimpse but one day it'll be here in its totality and in that kingdom there will be no more sickness there'll be no more death there will be no more pain there'll be no more sickness suffering there will be no more sin in that kingdom and so here's what we do church whenever we go out and advance the gospel we're prophesying that one day what you see in glimpses will be here in its entirety that's a bold action. Now let me tell you something. Secondly, and Kat, you're going to remember this because I never forgot it. Secondly is we do small actions. And you know what, church? I wish we would do this more often. Uh, we want the spectacular and the bold so bad. But you know what one of my hearts is, is that you would be a disciple in the mundane. You would be a disciple in the mundane. Stop looking to be something greater and do something better. It feels so purposeless. If you're not doing much, I want you to know that most of your life will be in the mundane. You'll live most of your life in the day-to-day -day grind. And I love this. And like I said, Kat, you probably remember this, but Catherine and I, we had a meeting a couple of months ago. We were going over a church. Um, we were going over things with the church. As many of you know, I don't really pass the church. She does. She does a lot of the work. Um, and I'm grateful for her. But we were meeting, and of course, when we meet um, for coffee, Ezra, her amazing son, is there. And remember, Kat had to leave to order something. And she went to order something, and there was some music kind of playing, uh, you know, in the background. It was kind of some funny music, so I kind of, like, tapped Ezra, and I kind of just did a little shimmy shake with him, and he kind of laughed. And it was a really small, insignificant moment. And I remember she came, and she sat down, and we started to talk. And all of a sudden, about 15 minutes into our conversation, a woman walked by. She taps Cat on the shoulder, and she whispers something in her ear. And then she comes to me. This is maybe six months ago, and can tell you how effective this was, and she hands me this note. Can I read to you what the note said? It says this. I saw you interacting with that boy next to you and saw a lot of kindness and love in the interaction. I hope you are or will become a big figure in his life. And later on, I, I talked to Kat. I was like, what did that lady say to you? And the lady went up to her because he, she didn't want to be disrespectful. She had no idea what our relationship was. And she basically assured her, I'm going to hand this gentleman a note, but I don't want you to think anything of it. And to this day, it has impacted me, and I keep it with me. And I want you to know what that woman did. She brought the kingdom of God right in that moment. She reminded me of the weak and the vulnerable in our society. She pulled out of me the courage to be a father to the fatherless. And I never forgot it. And we don't know if that woman is Christian, but I believe with all my heart she was filled with the Holy Spirit. We're looking for something great. 
When every day, if you were kingdom-minded, you would find something and the Spirit would guide you to do something. And you don't have to cast out a demon and you don't have to lead the entire coffee shop to Jesus. You just bring His kingdom and His Spirit will do the rest. You have purpose. You have a greater call. And it's not just to work to a nine-to-five, retire and find a nice place so you can die in it. But it's to wage war. And it's to bring people trapped in the darkness into God's marvelous light. I pray for this entire congregation. May we be a people of the Spirit. Jesus says... If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That tells me that the kingdom of God cannot be activated unless the Spirit of God is in us. And I pray right now over everyone in this congregation that the Spirit of God will be upon you as you leave this place and as you enter into the world. And Lord, may we bring the age to come into the age now. May we bring the kingdom to come into the world now. And may all of us be an outpost. May we do bold prophetic things. And may we also take small prophetic acts. In fact, I just pray, Holy Spirit, you would remind us this week, everyone in this room would do something to release the kingdom wherever they're at. I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you right now. What can I do to release the kingdom? You don't have to be special. You don't have to have all of these gifts and do all these wondrous things. What can I do to bring the kingdom of God where I'm at? In my home, in my marriage, with my children, at my workplace, at my school. And even if it's something as simple as a handwritten letter to somebody who's looking like Jesus and you reminding them of that, then I want to challenge you this week to bring the kingdom. Father, I thank you for what you're doing at Inspire Church. And I thank you for what you're doing throughout the churches in the nation, in the Bay Area. We just pray that your kingdom would come, your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 God bless you guys. We'll see you on Wednesday for Theology and Coffee. And next Sunday.